for example, the councillor there, he has spoken about how he's uh, trying to have single-use styrofoam restricted there and also talked about expanding that to plastic bags. But Saanich had the foresight and the wisdom, in my view, to put their bylaw aside, at least pending the outcome of this appeal. So I guess Saanich's bylaw will remain not in force and effect as well. But that's the sort of prudence I think we need to see more of in Victoria's governance. They can learn a lot from Saanich, in my view. But they are not interested in learning. Mm. This is a group that wants to change the city, the physical uh, characteristics of the city, and get into all of these issues around uh, human equity or human whatever and justice and economic issues and so on. And they want to do it all at one time. Yeah. So this is why the cost starts escalating. And the poor people, the people that are essentially paying the taxes are property owners and business. And a good many of the business owners can't vote. So basically, Isaac said it all this morning in his little blurb. Mm. His uh, constituency want him to do what he's doing. And that it comes back to Isaac and his... All right. The guiding voice to which we turn to better understand legal issues on this program during the second half of our second hour. And also, he is kind enough to provide analysis where necessary on our shows. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers with Legally Speaking. Good morning. Thanks for coming in as always. Thanks for having me. I must say, this is a uh, thick pile of paper kind of week. The... <laughs> There is no shortage of legal events going on in this country. Indeed. So let's dive in and get started. Uh, well, there's been lots of discussion about this uh, dismissed uh, application for leave to the Supreme Court of Canada on the plastic bag ban. So I do think it's worth providing a little bit of context about that and yes. how that works. So to give some idea of what it takes to go to the Supreme Court of Canada, it's more than simply, as you hear often, I'll take this to the Supreme Court of Canada. A little bit more is required. Um, you need to, in most cases, apply for leave or permission to go there. Last year, or 2018 actually now, mm -hmm. uh, they received 525 applications for leave, so requests to go there. But uh, of those, ultimately, they only wound up hearing 66 appeals. So the very large majority of leave applications are dismissed. And I should say, as a lawyer, I found this interesting. Yes, yeah. Of those 66, 26 of them, were cases where leave is not required. And those would be criminal cases where there is a dissent from a judge on the court of appeal. So like if you're convicted of murder, you appeal it to the court of appeal, you get a 2-1 split. One of the court of appeal judges said, you know, there should have been a new trial. You get to go to the Supreme Court of Canada automatically uh, without asking for leave or permission. So, so 566 applications, 40 were granted leave voluntarily by the court. Yes. I think that's that's correct. That's what it amounts to. So small percentage of them. Um, and uh, then in this case, there's also been some discussion about the costs award and what that would amount to, right, mm -hmm. uh, against the uh, city. Yeah, what does that mean? Right. So costs, including to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, when costs are awarded, the idea is that they are ordinarily awarded against the party who is successful. So if you sue somebody and you lose... The other party would get costs, which don't amount to all of their legal costs, but a portion of them, okay. uh, and vice versa. If you sue somebody, uh, they don't settle the thing, and you win, you would ordinarily get costs against them. And the whole idea is to encourage people to act reasonably and settle cases. Don't do things that have no merit, because you will wind up bearing some expense for doing so. But you don't make them the entire amount, because it could make the process so risky for people, they wouldn't want to engage in it. And so the costs award against the city for this unsuccessful leave application 
won't be the entire legal costs borne by the Plastic Bag Association. There's a party organization we ever mentioned. Sorry, the Canadian Plastic Bag Association. Presumably there's like an international following. Well, we talked to them earlier in yeah. the show. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe they have some like international conference in Vegas every few years. It's uh, crazy. <laughs> the um, little plastic bags that they put their little things in. And never mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've been so, made the, the highest quality. Yeah. So... They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't get all of the expenses back they incurred, but they would wind up with a portion of them. They would get all of the things that are like filing fees or other like actual outlays like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, And there are various other things that attach to an effort to go to the Supreme Court of Canada that don't attach to other uh, lower-level courts, one of which, for example, is you have to hire what's called a local agent. Mm-hmm. Like uh, if you're a lawyer here and you want to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada – you have to hire a local lawyer in Ottawa to be your sort of representative on the ground there to deal with the Supreme Court of Canada, um, you know, because they don't want to have to worry about, hey, sorry, you're out here. They need to deal with that matter more promptly. So there are other expenses. So okay. the, the upshot of all of that um, is it's likely to be a few thousand dollars uh, that the city will need to pay to the Canadian Plastic Bag Association. Maybe they can put it into a paper bag or something, tape it shut, and mail it over to them. So <laughs> there it is. Thank you for for helping us understand the intricate details of uh, how that all works. Uh, Another very contentious matter that has not yet ascended to a court as high as the Supreme Court of Canada, but who knows, may well in time, the Coastal Gasoline Pipeline decision. Now, this is an injunction, which you've told us in the past just means an order. It's an interlocutory injunction, which is a complicated term. How does this all fit together? Yeah, there are are a few elements about this that I think are important. So, the decision that was just made uh, a few days ago, the end, December 31st, so I guess more than a few days ago, um, was an uh, application actually trying to get rid of uh, an interim uh, injunction that was granted to stop the hereditary uh, chiefs uh, and others from uh, physically self-help remedies blocking this pipeline project. Mm-hmm. Uh, And they were actually trying to get that set aside, and that produced ultimately a a hearing, which was a substantive hearing, to sort out whether that injunction should remain in place, the interim injunction, or not. So was this the one from a year ago? Because a year ago they had the controversy of the blockade again, and at that point an injunction was being carried out. So there was a a court battle in the interim about trying to get the injunction set aside, and it was unsuccessful? Is that what happened? What happened is about a year ago... Uh, Coast GasLink pipelines wound up uh, getting an interim injunction to stop uh, people from the self-help blockade efforts up there to okay. prevent the pipeline from being built. Okay. Um, and then uh, the various people who were subject to that injunction didn't, by all according to the judgment, a- adhere to it. There were still efforts during that period of time to physically block access to the construction, but. They tried on an application to set aside the interim injunction, saying, oh, things have changed, you shouldn't uh, carry on with this. Uh, and it is that effort which then led to a more fulsome hearing about whether this injunction should remain in place. Uh, and uh, the various uh, groups or various individuals uh, were unsuccessful in trying to set aside the injunction. Now, there are a number of things I think are important because the way the thing's been portrayed since then in media reports have been yeah, in some instances, inaccurate, whether okay. that's intentionally so or not, I'm not sure. Uh, but it's uh, a few things are important here. First okay. of all, the uh, pipeline company, this Coastal GasLink Pipelines Limited, mm. 
has all of the required permits from the province to construct this pipeline, use the roads. There's nothing more required uh, from the province of British Columbia. And the province of British Columbia, in fact, the government of Canada, have no standing and no role in these injunction applications. The company has, the Coast Gas Link Pipelines, Inc., done everything they needed in terms of getting permits to build the pipeline. That's complete. Okay. Uh, and so uh, the, it, uh, the, the hearing is not a hearing involving the Ministry of uh, Energy and Mines. It's not a hearing involving the Government of Canada or the province of British Columbia. It's simply the gas company who, having spent years getting uh, consent from all of the elected band uh, councils, permission from the province, everything that was required, is mm-hmm. now just trying to build this pipeline. Uh, and ultimately, with that background, having gotten the injunction about a year ago, not being followed, this unsuccessful effort to try to get rid of the injunction, the uh, judge hearing that, uh, Madam Justice Church, um, she also made what's referred to as a uh, enforcement order, which is an order directing the RCMP to enforce the injunction. Um, you know, make sure that people aren't blocking the, physically blocking the effort to construct the pipeline because that's, uh, that issue has been determined. Uh, and some of the comments, for example, there were uh, news reports and there was a, he was on the, uh, on CFAX, a, uh, MP, Green Party MP, was on CFAX just the other day. For Nanaimo, Paul Manley. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and he was uh, making comments suggesting things like uh, the uh, Prime Minister uh, ought, or, and John Horgan ought to call off the RCMP. Yes, so, I would call that. That, to my mind, um, is really not fair commentary because the Premier of the province nor the Prime Minister of Canada has any part of this or any control over it. The Premier has no capacity to either send in the RCMP or not send in the RCMP, nor does the Prime Minister of Canada. This is a court order. It's a uh, order uh, that these this group of people stop physically blockading the construction efforts uh, and because they didn't follow voluntarily the order made a year ago, the judge has now ordered the RCMP to enforce that and to make sure they stop blocking the roads. The There is no provincial involvement in that decision politically. There's no federal political involvement in that decision. Uh, And they have, frankly, no particular say in that matter. The required permits were granted by the province. Uh, In fact, this didn't involve federal permitting, although the uh, hereditary chiefs made an argument uh, that this should have been a federal matter. Uh, that was rejected. So it'd be Constitution Act 92 sub 10C, the declaratory power? Yeah, well, it's okay. a, it's a, it's a yeah. provincial work. It doesn't cross provincial boundaries. Yeah, that's it's a, a matter of So it'd be so. Clause, uh, clause C can be engaged. I think yeah. it's 470 times, according to Professor Cheffin, since <laughs> Confederation. But uh, yeah, rarely used. So the, the point is that this litigation does not involve the province. It does not involve BC Ferries. It does not involve the Ministry of Mines and resources, whatever they're calling themselves now. All of the required permits have been granted, uh, and the, the uh, hereditary chiefs who are protesting that just don't like that decision, and so are physically trying to block it from proceeding. Which is why John Horgan says this is a rule of law issue. Correct. Okay, and, and, I get And the it. judge I says this it. is a rule of law issue. The judge has made the order that these people stop blocking the road. The judge has ordered the RCMP to enforce that order, that's not a matter of uh, provincial discretion or federal discretion, it, and uh, those permits have been granted. This decision has been made, 
uh, and it's simply a function of the uh, uh, unelected hereditary chiefs not liking that outcome. Another interesting thing I should say, when I reread carefully this decision from the B.C. Supreme Court upholding the injunction, yes. one of the interesting things is that the spokesperson for uh, one of the hereditary chiefs, right, the house is, is called Dark House, yes. is in addition to, and she acknowledges this in her response to that application, she describes herself as the spokesperson for Dark Horse, is also very interestingly an elected member uh, of the uh, one of the First Nation band councils who granted approval for this project to proceed. So what that really means, and this is important, the all of the elected uh, band councils in the area and ones surrounding it were consulted for a number of years. All of them granted approval for the construction of the pipeline. And in fact, Many of the contracts to actually build the pipeline are going to Aboriginal businesses and employing Aboriginal people doing the construction. Yes. But what this means is that this person, who's one of the named persons trying to set aside the order to stop blocking the road on behalf of the hereditary unelected chiefs, is herself an elected member of one of the band councils who approved the order, approved the construction. So what that means is that she was in a minority uh, on a band council that was elected that approved the pipeline uh, and is now in a capacity of acting for the unelected hereditary chiefs trying to uh, uh, stop the efforts to remove the blockades on the road. So it's. I thought that was a really interesting huh. detail that hasn't been focused on because it's, it's clear that the, the elected bands have given clear permission for this to proceed. Yes. Uh, but there are some people in the community, including this person, it's a Miss... Houston, H-U-S-O-N, yes. um, who is uh, both the spokesperson for one of these uh, hereditary uh, chiefs that doesn't want the thing to proceed. She's also an elected member uh, of one of the band councils that gave approval. So it would it, sort of like you were on the minority in city council, something got approved you didn't like, uh, and now you're out acting on behalf of, you know, purportedly on the behalf of the royal family or something yeah. uh, who doesn't think huh. the thing should proceed. Um, so I think that's just really important context that I don't think has been clearly pointed out. Michael, I want to thank you for your efforts in educating the public on this matter because I believe that the version of events that has been portrayed to the public by many activists uh, has been lacking in many material facts so as to, in the mind of an ordinary observer, I would suggest undermine public confidence in the dispensation of justice because a court would not do the things that this court is being alleged to have done. What you have described to us seems to be a much more reasonable course of action. Yeah, the, the other thing to point out in this decision, the court makes clear that the uh, gas pipeline company spent years consulting with everyone involved, not only all the elected councils who all approved it, uh, they also spent a very long period of time uh, trying to consult with and speak to all of the hereditary chiefs, even though they don't actually have the authority to approve the thing or not including uh, making, the judge described it as, the plaintiff made repeated attempts to consult directly with Dark House, that's one of the uh, groups, yes. and offered to provide information, discuss the concern of Dark Horse uh, regarding the pipeline project and ways to mitigate the potential impacts to Dark House territory. Mm. Dark House was invited to participate in the Environmental Assessment Office's working group and refused to do so. They just wouldn't engage. Hmm. So the other thing being suggested now is that hey, why haven't these hereditary 
uh, chief's been consulted. Everyone should surely sit down and do that. Well, the judge makes clear that the many years were spent engaging them. Some, in some cases, they engaged. In other cases, they simply refused to engage at all. So that background, I think, is very important. Um, it is. The, the other agree. thing I think I need to comment on as well. Um, can we is, get a break? Oh, sorry, yes. so we okay. can continue this. I, th- we'll continue uh, analyzing this matter. This is very important, folks. This is the matter that has given rise to all the protests that we've seen in our city so far this week. Michael Mulligan taking us through the details. Context matters. This looks different when you hear the whole story. We'll continue telling it after this. All right, we're back on the air here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers offering his analysis on the legal stories of the week. Again, ladies and gentlemen, as I often remind you, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a journalist. Michael Mulligan is a lawyer, so we turn to him to help us understand the more intricate nature of these matters. You were talking about another issue we want to underline on this uh, matter of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, Michael. Sure, and, and you know, we've seen uh, here sort of various uh, groups um, uh, joining in protest, I think perhaps with a, not the clearest understanding of what in fact is uh, uh, going on in the actual uh, case. And we saw that uh, the other day with this uh, protest of young people at the uh, Ministry of whatever it is, Mines and Resources, whatever they call themselves. Yes, mines, mines, Resources and Petroleum. No, that's uh, never mind. I want to say Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources, but I'm not sure. Right, something along these okay. lines. So, I, I mean... It's, uh, I suppose, great to see young people get involved in things, but it's a, uh, I think that demonstrates just a clear misunderstanding of who's involved and who has control over these things. That ministry simply doesn't have control over what's uh, going on. All of the required permits have been granted, uh, the things being constructed, uh, and the uh, actual injunction has been sought by the company who's now proceeding with the construction as a result of all of the permits having already been granted. So the Protest is a perhaps in pointing in the wrong direction, but nice to see people enthusiastic. Um, I should say this, though. I, I listened carefully to the uh, comments that were replayed today from the city councillor, Isset, Ben Isset. Hmm. Uh, and I actually took the time to write them down. And he had this comment about whenever there is a, a police operation involving um, protests, there is always a high risk that police will use violence. And I thought that was really quite unfair. I mean, I got to say, in my uh, daily work that I've done for some time, I do criminal defense work. I spend my time reading police reports, cross-examining police officers. I represent people who are charged with criminal offenses. That's what I do for a living. Indeed. And it's, in my experience, not fair to say to the police that there's a high risk that the police are going to use violence when... Uh, dealing with these matters, that's just not uh, the usual state of things. There are, of course, unusual circumstances, and we deal with those as they arise. But I just thought that was a, a really unfair uh, characterization of what they're dealing with um, and the way they deal with it. Uh, in, in my experience, at least, uh, the expectation is that there's going to be uh, proper and professional behavior. It's carefully reviewed and scrutinized where, they, where that isn't so, as is appropriate, uh, but it's really not fair to be suggesting that the uh, police are using violence or somehow behaving inappropriately. Uh, there was a, a similar suggestion made by the uh, Green Party federal MP uh, the other day talking about um, the enforcement of the uh, in the court-ordered enforcement uh, of the uh, injunction to stop blocking the road. 
suggesting somehow this was sort of a police decision, but it's not. The the police are doing what they're required to do, in that case pursuant to a, a court order, uh, and in the case here, sort of uh, removing people uh, who wouldn't leave after, I think, 15 hours or something of protest. So I just don't think it's a fair characterization to suggest that the uh, we can expect the police are going to act in a violent fashion, which suggests uh, somehow... Uh, inappropriate conduct on their part and I've seen nothing to suggest that what went on uh, here could be properly characterized in that way at all. All right. Well, thank you for that analysis, Michael, because I honestly, I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know where the thresholds are. You're the professional. As you mentioned, you're a criminal defense uh, counsel. You, of course, deal with uh, individuals who have been apprehended by Victoria Police for, uh, on suspicion of various uh, offenses every single day. So you would know and, and you don't share that assessment. I don't. Okay. I mean, the, the, we always have to review each thing individually, but to suggest that that the police ordinarily or can be expected to respond with violence is, is just not a fair characterization. All right. Thank you for that yeah. assessment. It's greatly appreciated. We have uh, three minutes and 15 seconds left in our segment today. How shall we spend them? I, I think probably we should spend that uh, just uh, commenting and reflecting upon uh, member of the legal profession that we uh, lost recently uh, in the form of Ted Hughes. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, he, he passed away recently at the age of 92. Uh, and he had really a pretty remarkable career, uh, which included uh, uh, being a, a former uh, Superior Court judge and uh, various roles with the provincial government uh, here in British Columbia after he moved here. But one of the things which I think is just remarkable, you know, reading about and reflecting upon his uh, background and his uh, contributions are the contributions and the efforts he made long after he did all of those things, right? After he previously served as a judge, he had various provincial roles. People are familiar with his um, acting as the conflicts uh, commissioner, dealing with uh, Vandersam and others. Uh, but uh, he carried on... Um, uh, you know, well into his 80s, doing all sorts of valuable uh, work, engaging in things like um, doing reports on the role of women in the legal profession, uh, looking at how uh, uh, young people are dealt with in the child protection scheme here, looking at uh, the uh, Aboriginal youth and how they're treated in other parts of the country. So one of the things I think is just really uh, notable and, and uh, remarkable uh, about him uh, was the the length of his service and the breadth of his service, um, and uh, you know many of his uh, I think important uh, contributions, including those that I've mentioned, uh, were contributions that he made uh, well after serving in all various other capacities, uh, you know uh, up until very recently. So uh, a really pretty remarkable career all the way to age uh, ninety two, uh, and I think that's uh, uh, well deserved. Uh, uh, reflection upon all of the contributions that he's made over many, many years. I never had the pleasure of meeting the man, but uh, by reputation, a, a giant, nothing less than a giant in the cause of justice and of giving a voice and power to those who are voiceless and powerless. I, I cannot imagine a more comprehensive contribution to the well-being of the people of British Columbia than what was made by former Justice Hughes. Yeah, and his wife. That should be mentioned as well, right? And she served on city council That's here, true. involved yeah. in charitable uh, work. So anyways, a, a remarkable career and I think worth uh, reflecting upon and remembering uh, age 92. Absolutely. An example for all of us. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for your analysis and insight. Greatly appreciated. Thank you. All right. Take care. Michael Mulligan every Thursday during the second half of our second hour here on CFAX 1070.